This year, massive wildfires have ignited all along the American West. People in California, Oregon, Colorado, and elsewhere have evacuated their homes. They've inhaled dangerous levels of smoke and particulate matter. And they're wondering what it means for the long-term habitability of where they live. At the same time, the country's best fire researchers have been trying to learn more about what causes fires, especially extreme fire events like fire tornadoes. They've been poring over reports from earlier fires and have even turned to old books about World War II to try to build software that will predict which communities are most at risk and ultimately prevent the destruction these fires cause. So this week on Get Wired, writer Dan Duane joins me to talk about his November cover story for Wired Magazine, which goes deep into the cutting edge of fire research. Dan, thanks so much for joining me on Get Wired this week. Thanks for having me, Lauren. So tell us how you decided to write about the fires. Well, I go up to the mountains of California a lot every summer. And a few years ago, I happened to be up in the Sierra Nevada during a wildfire um, and drove sort of with my family in the car past, you know, walls of flame and all that. Um, and that sort of put fires in my mind. And that was also late in the drought during this mass tree mortality event when tens of millions of trees were dying all over the Sierra Nevada. So I, I had this kind of double visual hit in one summer of, wow, wildfires are really big and scary, you know, and everywhere all of a sudden. And boy, there's a lot of dead trees out here. And that kind of put in my mind, I wonder what happens when all these dead trees catch on fire. Uh, so that's what got me going. I have to tell you, your story in Wired this month was just terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying for many of us who live in California, but also the whole notion of an uncontrollable fire tornado. The story kicks off with a fire scientist who had a fire tornado kind of sneak up on him. This was back in the 2018 car fire, which was a very large wildfire in Northern California. Tell us how you came across this scientist, Eric Knapp, and what his experience was like. I was calling various researchers and asking, what is the big fire going to be like of the future? And I kept kind of hearing about the car fire and the fire tornado that happened in the car fire. And, and two or three different people said to me, hey, and you know, this guy, Eric Knapp, um, was actually there. He actually watched that thing happen. Eric Knapp is a very interesting guy. He's kind of really a fire ecologist, and he works for the Forest Service at the Pacific Southwest Research Station, it's called up there in Reading. And he was at work that day, late July of 2018. It was a very hot day. It was record-breaking heat, 113 degrees. I think that was on the tail end of the hottest month on record in Reading. So, he, you know, he goes to work that day. He's in an air-conditioned office. He's got plans for that evening to get together with family friends, you know, drink a couple beers maybe and order pizza and just hang out. And there already was a fire burning in the coastal mountains just west of town. But Eric wasn't particularly worried about it even later in the day when his friend called to say, hey, I think there's some chance my neighborhood might end up having to get evacuated and I kind of want to get ready and what are you guys thinking about just doing doing our pizza get-together here at my place while I get ready to go in case I have to, you know, evacuate? 
It's a true California spirit right there. Like, we'll just get ready to evacuate while we have our pizza and beers and still enjoy life a little bit. (laughs) That's funny. You're totally right. Eric, you know, happened to grab some Nomex fireproof uh, clothing at work. He's not, he hasn't been a professional firefighter, but he's spent a lot of time around wildfires and in research burns and prescribed burns and that kind of thing. So he has the gear and has some experience with it. He drives on out to his friend's house. She lives in a nice little suburban subdivision down along the Sacramento River. And uh, when he gets there, he can see this huge plume of smoke and ash and hot gas, this giant plume rising up above the fire, kind of straight up. And it it just looks a little ominous to him. And he kind of thinks, you know, I should get a better look at what's going on. So he parks at his friend's house and then he runs out this trail, the Sacramento River Trail, to where he can get a good vantage. He can actually see the front of flames on the other side of the Sacramento River. And while he's standing there, he notices uh, something sort of peculiar, which is that the wind at his back is blowing out of the south toward the fire. But the fire itself is being pushed by a northwesterly wind, the wind blowing out of the northwest into the back of the fire. That's kind of odd, right? So those two wind fields are sort of intersecting at the fire. And as Eric notices this, he also notices that the fire plume, the smoke column just above the flame front, that parts of it are moving in different directions, as if the air is beginning to rotate or spin. He knew that that rotation could signal a transition to a a different kind of fire behavior. And he thought, hmm, this is a little worrisome. So he turns around. He starts running back down the trail towards his friend's house. He passes neighbors just out walking, you know, going to try to get a view. Tells them, hey, you guys should probably turn around. He gets all the way back to his friend's house. And his friend and her daughter are already kind of packing up to evacuate. So everybody leaves this house um, except Eric. And he says, I'll be okay. I got my fireproof clothing. I'll just give me an extra minute. I'm going to try to secure your house. You know, hose down the fence. Well... What Eric didn't realize until much later was that that plume of smoke had begun to rotate faster and faster and faster until it spun up into just a full-blown, like, Oklahoma-style EF3 tornado. Um, And this thing, as it rotated and spun faster and faster, also grew taller and taller and taller until it was... You know, the best estimates based on atmospheric radar and that kind of thing are about 17,000 feet tall. And this thing was sucking fire into it. Um, So it was the sort of center of the vortex was located right on top of the flame front. And as it was rotating, it was drawing flame up into this rotating vortex until it was creating, in essence, a tornado or vortex of fire, a a fire-nado or a fire-tornado. The fallout zone, the place where all of that stuff started falling down, happened to be over the um, the subdivision in which Eric Knapp was standing, hosing down a fence. This gigantic fire tornado is hidden from his view by smoke, but this thing is obliterating literally hundreds of homes. It uprooted entire trees. It picked up a Ford F-150 and flipped it many times down a street. And Eric starts to notice burning debris raining down out of the sky. He was saying, you know, this wasn't embers. I mean, this was large pieces of burning wood that are raining down from thousands of feet up like firebombs. And 
those falling pieces over a large area were landing on other homes and igniting them. Um, and while he was standing in this, his friend's yard, hosing it down, when one of these firebombs, in essence, just thumped down right on that yard and ignited the yard that he was standing on. He did then kind of have the thought of like, gee, I, you know, maybe I ought to get out of here. <laughs> uh, and he bolted for his car and drove out of that subdivision. This is the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, This it is, is like an it? apocalyptic movie nightmare. Yeah. And that, as horrifying as it sounds, that was neither the largest California fire of 2018 nor the most destructive. And we're seeing fires behave more and more in these kind of anomalous ways. So I want to take a step back and talk a little about the history of forest fires in California and how we have been modeling them for years and why that maybe needs to change. So back in the late 60s, some researchers at the National Forest Service would, in laboratory settings, they would set up a bunch of fire fuel, you know, wood, grass, whatever it is, light it on fire, blow wind at it, measure the wind distance, measure how fast the fire moved. Um, just trying to figure out the basics of how these things worked. In 1972, a Forest Service researcher named Richard Rothermel published the first equations describing the speed at which a fire would advance on a single heading, so in a one-dimensional straight line. By the end of that year, um, there was a national fire danger rating system, and they were baking it into the rating system. And a kind of fire behavior modeling framework grew up around the Rothermel equation. In 1992, a young graduate student in fire science just finished his PhD named Mark Finney, he was actually just applying for jobs, and while he was waiting, you know, to hear and see if he could get a job, he happened to cross these scholarly papers about two-dimensional mapping of fire behavior. So not just one dimension on a line, but God, we could actually predict how something will grow on a map. It took a lot of computation. He thought, well, God, I bet I could get a PC to do this for me. He wasn't really a computer science guy, but he had some self-confidence in his ability to code. Coding was kind of new. He just took a whack at it. And uh, he got it to work. You know, he got a PC to do this thing for him. That software that Mark Finney cooked up was really the first practically applicable fire behavior modeling software. And he got a job in the research division of Sequoia National Park. And that gave him this great opportunity to look at wildfire on the ground and sort of stress test this kind of fun beta software thing he was making up. And right about then, 1994, uh, there was a fire in Washington State. Um, it was called the Taiyi Creek Fire in the Wenatchee National Forest. That was a really exceptionally violent fire and burned a lot of land for a long time and took many, many hundreds of firefighters. And I think the U.S. Marines went to help. It was very destructive. Um, Finney was brought in after the fire was under control, to have a look at the, what had happened, how fast it had grown. And it was looking at this fire and what, looking at what he called the growth maps, right? So they were able to say, well, see, here's where it was on you know, this day at this time, and the next day it had grown to here. So looking at the growth maps for that fire, Finney noticed something very peculiar. This thing really looked like a blob-like area that was all on fire at once, 
And every day in the afternoon, for several days running, it would expand in all directions at once. Hmm. So typically fires move in one direction based on the slope of the hill and the direction of the wind, but this fire was different. It was expanding in every direction at once. Yeah, that's right. And when it did that, it would also have this enormous plume rising up into the sky over it. And Finney was sort of looking at this thing saying, God, this is so far outside our ability to model it. would be kind of silly to even try. Surface conditions did not explain what was going on. That kind of got filed away in his brain as one of the sort of interesting questions to look at over the years. What is that? And how did that work exactly? And that inspires him to keep digging into why this fire behaved this way and why his software couldn't have predicted that. That's right. And the thing that's important to remember is that the software as it stood really worked for the vast majority of fires. I mean, it's pretty darn good. Um, And to this day, in various iterations and versions and adaptations, it actually remains the gold standard in North American firefighting. But it sure didn't work for that Taiyi Creek fire. And as the years went on, you know, Finney and others started to become aware of more and more fires. Just every once in a while, there'd be some fire that expanded in some crazy way that didn't make sense. Much faster, much more violently in directions and headings that you couldn't explain with wind and ground slope. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll learn how Mark Finney had something of an aha moment about these mysterious fire patterns while he was reading an old book about World War II and how that partly inspired today's fire modeling research. We'll be right back. So Dan, Mark Finney had been studying these fires that didn't fit the mold. Did he ever have any kind of breakthrough? He did have a a breakthrough of sorts or sort of a light bulb moment. You know, he's just a guy who's interested in fire, reads all aspects of fire history and fire behavior over the years. And somewhere along the line, happened to cross a book called Fire in the Air War that was an account of the role that fire played in the destruction of cities in the Second World War. During times of war, air power is war power. As destructive as is necessary to destroy the enemy. The essence of it is that Allied commanders, so really the British and American Air Forces, figured out that it's a lot easier to burn a city down than to blow it up. And they also sort of figured out some basic principles for how to do that. Um, And the concept that they developed, and this was used in sort of horrifying effect on uh, the cities of Hamburg and Dresden in Germany and also in Tokyo, they would first send high-altitude reconnaissance planes over these cities to take photographs of the cities. Then they would have intelligence people look at the photographs and say, yeah, this part of the city over here, that looks like it's really made mostly of wood. So like in the case of Hamburg, there were parts of the city that were a thousand years old and built of these massive wooden timbers. Then they would send in waves of bombers uh, carrying high explosives. The numbers are sort of hard to get your mind around because we haven't seen total war in so long, but it would be like 2,000 heavy bombers. Um, 
literally 2,000 aircraft, all completely loaded with high explosives. And they deliberately targeted parts of the cities that appeared to be built of wood. So the first wave would be, you know, literally thousands of aircraft flying over these cities, dropping high explosives to break buildings up, but to punch holes in everything, really, right? To, to ventilate the fire bed, as it were. And then a second wave of many hundreds of bombers would drop hundreds of thousands of pounds of magnesium thermite incendiary bombs. And at that point, the buildings effectively were just heavy fuel for the fire. Right. And so this was done to a number of cities. But something peculiar happened in a couple of cases that the Allied war planners hadn't been intending. It's not something they set out to try to do, which was that about 20 minutes to 30 minutes after the wave of incendiary bombing, so 20 to 30 minutes after they'd kind of lit the city on fire, this huge plume or convective column started to rise from a very large portion of the city. And as that convective column rose, it sent this plume, this column of smoke and ash and flame, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet up into the sky uh, into what kind of looked like a giant thunderstorm, a sort of huge supercell thunderstorm, except it was made completely of smoke. And in a few cases, this actually led to the generation of fire tornadoes, not unlike we saw um, in Redding, in the car fire. It occurred to him, my God, these fires that we're having in the American West, you know, they're not huge fires just because of climate change. They are huge fires in part because We are creating fuel conditions in our Western forests that are like the fuel conditions in those cities in the Second World War. It sort of piques his curiosity and leads him to these other research reports from the Cold War when the Defense Nuclear Agency and Cold War researchers are also looking back to Dresden and also to Hiroshima. They actually started trying to study the physics of this. That's where Finney starts to get his first real aha moments of like, oh, my God, somebody actually has done the research on this stuff. And he learned a lot from those reports. What would you say were the biggest takeaways from these military reports? Two big things became apparent to Finney. One was that these kinds of behaviors, these kinds of fire behaviors in which you have fire tornadoes, you have these massive firestorms, were partly a function of fuel conditions. So they were partly a function of somehow getting the big, heavy fuels, which is in in the case of a city, it's like giant construction timbers, you know, the huge beams of old wooden buildings in in a forest, it would be whole mature trees. So it, it had something to do with getting an awful lot of very heavy fuel, torching, burning in hot, open flaming combustion all at once. It also had something to do with feedback loops between that burning and the atmosphere. What I mean by a feedback loop is a sort of back and forth give and take relationship in which you get all this giant heavy fuel burning at once. You get, let's say, a whole bunch of big, live, huge trees fully torching together across a huge area of land. All that torching is dumping so much heat into the atmosphere, right? It's putting up this column of heat that is so hot, so much hot air is now rising up into the sky that the rising of hot air into the sky 
starts to suck wind into the base of the fire. And the sucking of wind into the base of the fire has the effect that blowing on a campfire does. So the fire has found a way to stoke itself, in essence. The fire has found a way to fuel itself. And that creates this kind of feedback in which the fire is getting hotter and hotter and hotter and the atmosphere is changing all around it. And, you know, this does these crazy things. I mean, the car fire tornado is one of the scary versions of what it can do. But they also create these gargantuan cloud formations that produce lightning, that send hundreds of lightning strikes back down to the ground miles away so they can ignite new fires many miles away from the original fire. It creates its own weather event. It creates its own weather. The fire begins to take control of local weather and be the primary driver of local weather. And does the software that Finney created now incorporate that information into the modeling? No. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, so so this is really where we have to pivot to the consortium. What is the consortium? This modeling problem is too urgent, it's too important, and it's too complicated for any one lab to take on by itself. This is a really hard science problem. And we need to get it right really soon because the stakes are so high. So under the direction of a man named David Saw, A large distributed Manhattan Project of Fire Science, you could say, has come together. Many labs in many places working on many pieces of the problem simultaneously, all in constant collaboration with each other. The consortium is called Pyrogens. It's like, you know, fire intelligence, Pyrogens. Finney is a part of that consortium working on this heat engine fuels component. They're building this giant grain silo-sized burn chamber in Montana, where they're going to heap up wood and all this stuff inside and light it on fire and blow wind at it and blow moisture at it and figure out the physics of energy release from these giant fuel beds. So that's his piece of it. There are other people doing other pieces of it that will all hopefully get stitched together to create, you know, the new supermodel. (laughs) What kind of information will this supermodel, as you called it, give us? It'll let us say Based on our analysis of current weather patterns over the entire eastern Pacific Ocean, it looks like the Santa Barbara area about five days from now is going to be at very high risk of extreme fire behavior. Once that fire is ignited and starts to burn, it'll let a firefighting agency say, by this afternoon, we're going to get a huge plume on this thing. Um, that is going to cause it to spread really fast and burn really hot and could produce tornado-like stuff, we got to evacuate this entire area in a giant hurry. Of course, we also want to figure out how to avoid these kind of fires. (laughs) It might be nice to just have them not happen. So the other thing that, you know, the other big ambition of of Pyregents is to produce these simulation engines that allow us to run climate simulations for 100 years and say, okay, let's assume... We get doomsday-level climate change. What if we do absolutely nothing smart in terms of managing the fuels in our forests? We're just total dopes about it. What kind of fires will we see? Okay, let's try now saying, what if we do plan A fuels management? You know, we're going to do some prescribed burns, do all kinds of smart things to reduce the amount of 
wildfire fuel piling up in our wildlands. Now let's run that through the simulation and see what happens. And go, hey, look at that. It actually is really different. It saves us a trillion dollars over the next 50 years. Um, maybe we should do that. But the really urgent piece of it will be um, being able to tell those of us who live in these towns and these cities and these communities in California, hey, if a fire breaks out in your neighborhood anytime in the next five days, it is going to have the potential to be super dangerous. Yeah, one of the one of the quotes from your story that really just kind of chilled me was one of your sources said, I can give you 150 communities that have exactly the same combination of factors as paradise in yeah. the state of California, yeah. which yeah. is really scary to think about. So Dan, as the research has gotten better, the fires have gotten worse. Why is this happening? The fires that we are seeing in California, which are getting bigger, more violent, more destructive, more deadly, are the result of a century of very poor management of our public lands intersecting with climate change in the sense that the changing climate in California is giving us hotter weather, it's giving us drier weather, it's giving us much longer spells of hot, dry weather, which bakes all the moisture out of fuels and makes them that much more flammable. Uh, the changing climate is also giving us more and more severe spells of what they call extreme fire weather. So days of very hot, dry winds blowing very hard down canyons full of very dry, flammable stuff. The piece of that that has to do with how we've managed our forests, how we've managed our public lands. Wildlands in the American West burn. They just are going to burn. There's no life without fire in the American West. That's like imagine you can have life without flood in the Mississippi River Basin or you know, life without coastal erosion in Florida or something. It's just delusional. The, this this is a landscape that is flammable. It evolved to be flammable. It's supposed to be flammable. And wildfires are essential to the health of many ecosystems in the state of California. So there's no living without fire. Once you accept that, then you have to accept that all these wildlands that we have, they're just going to burn. Every choice that we make um, affects the way in which they will burn. For centuries, probably for millennia, indigenous Californians deliberately lit wildfires quite regularly in order to burn out underbrush to encourage the growth of pasture, which was good for game, kept the forests open. You know, um, that constant lighting of wildfires actually had the effect of keeping the severity of wildfires very low. Uh, so low that the wildfires tended to just burn out grass and not in ignite entire forests. That kind of ended in the early 20th century with the formation of the National Forest Service um, and the idea of trees as lumber, paper. It also ended with the Smokey the Bear mentality that forest fires are always bad. You have so many reasons to protect your forests. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. <laughs> You know, all of us who don't like smoky air play a really big role in that. We've all kind of, all over the state, we've really pressured public agencies not to burn. And then the fuel gets thicker and denser and thicker and denser so that when there is a fire, um, you know, it's a major firestorm, a major conflagration. What would you say is the most hopeful thing you learned in reporting out this story? You know, the 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 most hopeful thing for me comes back to where I started, which is all those dead trees I'd seen up in the Sierra Nevada. I grew up in California, and I love the wildlands of California. I love the forests and the hills and the mountains and all that. And 
one of the more sort of heartbreaking thoughts in all of this to me has been the discovery that if we don't play our cards right, if we don't do this right, um, you know, we may lose hundreds and hundreds of miles of continuous forest. It'll all be barren scrubland. So one of the more hopeful things to me was to learn that um, with smart fuels management, that doesn't have to happen. Even with really bad climate change, even with bad global warming, um, none of this really has to happen. In a weird way, the fire piece of climate change in California, it's, it's the most immediate and upsetting in all of our lives um, right now. But it's also the one we can actually do something about, weirdly. We can do something about it by not complaining to the local air quality board when there's smoky air, you know, by telling our public officials that, yes, no, we actually want them to do prescribed burns. We can create a sort of cultural groundswell of support for doing the right thing to reduce the fuels so that the fires aren't as big and aren't as destructive. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Get Wired. And um, everyone should go read Dan's story. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Dan Duane. You can follow him on Twitter at Daniel Duane. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the show. And you can read his entire cover story at Wired.com. This episode was produced by Mickey Capper, with additional production help from Anna Stitt and Alex Jerome. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Nina Gensler-Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Wired's executive editor, Maria Straczynski, gave us additional guidance. Scott Rosenfield is Wired's site director. And our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can subscribe to Wired at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>